I mean, is that heaven? Does that, like you point to that and they go, that's heaven because, you know, there's gold here. This is heaven because there's a seraphim here. No, heaven is heaven because God is there. Come on, and where is God right now, saints? He's supposed to be with you and in you. That's everything we're learning right now in the life of Jesus. That his kingdom would come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So where's the earth heaven's supposed to be coming to right now? Come on, it's not about trees. It's not about fish. It's not about mountains and oceans. The earth he's coming to is your heart, your body. So we're going to sing this again, and I want to ask you to believe it even if you don't feel it. I want you to believe it even if you don't see it with your eyes that you are literally as close to heaven as you can ever get because when you go to heaven and you are there face to face with God, your spirit will not be any closer to God than it was today. God is here with you today, right now, in a very real real way, not a make-believe way, not a kind of sort of way. He is with you. The only difference between here and heaven is you're not in your body anymore, distracted by all the physical hindrances and limitations. That's the only difference. But you are not closer to a God that is close to you right now. You are not closer to God in heaven than he is to you right now. So right now, you have the chance to worship him one more time, as close as you'll ever be, to tell him how much you love him, to ask of him whatever's on your heart, or just to be in his presence and tell him you're grateful one more time. And I've I've never been. I can't get closer on this earth to God's presence than I am right now. I don't need to fast more, pray more, do more, go to church more. I just need to believe that right now God's presence is with me right now. seated in his presence when your body goes in the grave it will not be closer to heaven are you guys listening so literally even in your body in that sense your body is the closest it's ever going to be to heaven until the resurrection because when your body dies it goes and turns into dust and as it turns into dust it doesn't get closer to God in that sense because the spirit is gone so even in your body Right now, your body is the closest it will ever be to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Come on, y'all should believe that. Some of y'all feel like, I'm not really close to Jesus. That's because you're not saved. And others of you say, well, I feel like I'm saved. I've said a prayer, but I don't feel that close to Jesus. You're probably in sin. I'm being honest with you. You're probably in sin. You're probably doing things every day in your life that that distract you from the reality of who you are in Christ. When you are saved and truly living sanctified, you will believe that. Not just because a preacher said it, but because you live it and you're experiencing it. How many of you walk and talk with Jesus every day and literally he's this close to you? How many of you? That's a minority of you, but I'm proud that you're here. 
Seriously, I'm proud that the minority of you can sense it, but the majority of you are either sleeping, and I rebuke you for being tired, or, you, or you're not right with God. I want to be very honest with you. The stepping out of your body, the stepping out of your body does zero transformation of your soul. Zero. Zero. Death is not your savior. Leaving the body, leaving the body, it doesn't transform you. You don't go through electrical currents, nothing. You are either saved and sanctified, filled the Holy Ghost on this side of heaven, or you are going to hell when you lose this body. Some of you have not learned the real gospel. That's why you don't understand to experience the real. You're not experiencing the real gospel. You're not experiencing it because you don't understand it. You think God is still working on you. He's changing you little by little. That's not how it works. You will never reach that goal you think you're going to have. You will go to hell on a works-based religion with Father Tom, uh, with uh, Guru Mahatma Gandhi, whatever. You're going to go to hell with all these other false religions that are teaching you to do works to get better. I am in Christ right now. Christ has saved my soul. How many believe that? Christ has transformed me to the point where he says, it is finished. There is no transformation that happens in my soul at death. The only thing that happens at death is I'm delivered from a body of death. Then I go into the presence of the Lord. I will shed this body. There's not something that happens between death and heaven. Show it to me one place in scripture between death and heaven. There's a perfection. Show me between death and heaven that on your journey up there, you get a Holy Ghost car wash or something. The Bible says by one sacrifice, he has perfected for all time the people of God. One sacrifice. Let's go there right now because I'm looking at some of you deciding whether or not you're going to believe this. I have 75 verses to go to in Matthew chapter 26, but I guess I have time for you today to make a little bit of extra time. Why? Because I want those of you listening to me to believe this, to not just say, uh, well, my, my pastor taught me this, so I believe it. No, I want you to see it in the scriptures. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, let's look at verse 14. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So right now, are you being made separate in all your actions and behaviors? Is God telling you stop doing those sinful things and you're being separated to do righteous things? Is that happening in your life right now, yes or no? So, so that's, that's happening. You're, you're learning different behaviors. You're, you're, you're in the process right now of changing your mind, transforming the way you think. That's what Romans 12 talks about. You're, you're being transformed. There is a spiritual growth that's going on. I'm not saying just because you were made perfect forever that you always act perfect. But the making of you perfect is who you be. That's why you can do perfect. I be perfect first, so now I can do perfect. Do I always do perfect right? No, I don't, but it never changes being perfect. My son is perfectly my son by his DNA. There is no more DNA he can get to be my son. That was, that was established that night at conception. That was established that night. How many understand that? DNA was inserted, and life was given, and he was perfectly my son. There is not one thing now he can do as a six-year-old, soon to be a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, nine-year-old, ten-year-old, a third-year-old. There's no more doing that can ever change his DNA. He's my son. Are you listening? At born again, at birth, at new life, you were perfected. Listen to it again so you don't get it twisted. For by one death, as you travel to heaven through the dimensions of times, he makes perfect forever. No, 
By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are living holy and changing their life or changing the way they think. That's how it works. Amen? All right, now you got it. Well, let's go one more. Let's go to Ephesians 2.10. Always good to go there. How many like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10? For we are his what? Workmanship, completed work. So some of our songs don't go along with K-Love. Do you know why? Because K-Love is busted. That's why. K-Love wants you beautifully broken. Jesus wants you beautifully healed. K-Love wants you to sing a sad country song with a tear in your beer. And follow cowards that can't tell you about heaven or hell and have no uh, spizzerinctum or the Holy Spirit energy in what they're talking about. They're always trying to get you to be depressed and to get you to feel you're far from God. And if you can just make it through one more day, you'll be all right. That's not the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel is we are right now God's handiwork. I'm sorry, Satan, not today. You don't get to trick me into singing a sad song. I am God's handiwork right now. It doesn't say he's whittling on me. Like that dude you know who fixes cars that got four of them broke up in his yard right now that always comes out on Saturday with oil stains all over the driveway and all over the street, and you're like, please put that vehicle away. Jesus doesn't have a bunch of you in his life right now, and he's like, oh, you're broken. I'm fixing you. I've got to fix your oil pan. got to drain you. i got to go over here, put a new brake system on you. You are God's workmanship. You are the best that he came to make by dying on the cross. That's what you and I are. Created, past tense, it was done at the cross. When he said it is finished, what do you think that means? Now you start working for salvation? My work's done, boys. Get to work for yourself. Is that what it meant? It was finished. It's just his stuff was done. Just Jesus was done. Now it's time for you to do some stuff. You don't do stuff to work your salvation now in that sense. You work out from your salvation, not work for your salvation. He says, Paul talking here, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So I was created perfect to do perfect. I was created a workmanship, a masterpiece to do great works, which God, now watch this. Look how easy Christianity gets for you here right now. Now, most pastors aren't going to convince you of this because they themselves don't know how to live out Christianity. They're on depression medication. They're coming to see your therapist an hour before you get there. But I'm going to tell you the truth of Christianity. Your soul is at rest because every good work has already been prepared in advance for you to do. You will never show up to one situation that God has not prepared all the strength you need, all the wisdom you need, all the power you need, all the resources you need, all the courage you need, all the patience you need, all the love you need. You and I will never show up to one situation. I don't care if it's being beheaded today because of our Christian faith as they are being persecuted around the world or whether or not it's you leaving out if you're being nice in traffic there is not one good work there is not one thing ordained in your life to do to please God that has not already been prepared for you to walk it through you and I literally sin when we don't do what we've already been prepared to do that's all sin is is you breaking the plan God has for you the plan has already been written. The footprints have already been laid out. Just follow him. Cruise control. This is Christianity. This is how we are to look at our lives. We are a workmanship. Did I do the work or did he do the work? I'm a handiwork. Did he do the work or did I do the work? He did the work. That's done. 
Did I, I've been created new in Christ Jesus. Did I create myself? Did a cake bake itself, y'all? Are you listening? Created in Christ Jesus. Now what do I do? I do the good works. And then even then, they've been prepared for me to do. And the Bible says he gives us strength to do all things. He's always with us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. That's why I don't feel sorry for anybody. I mean, I have sympathy towards people suffering in life. Of course, I feel sympathy. But I don't feel sorry for anybody. The idea is, do you trust God and are you willing to do the good work he has for you? Even those that are suffering right now, I feel sympathy for the persecuted church. But the Bible even said that the martyr, the persecuted, get blessings that we don't get. So they should rejoice when people say all kinds of evil against them because they're suffering in the same way of the prophets. My Jesus literally says they get to rejoice in a way that I don't get to rejoice. And when we get to heaven, we'll see how real heavenly rewards are and the life that they lived and how much God blessed them. So we, we feel sympathy towards people suffering and those kinds of things, but it doesn't matter what you face in life, whether it's life or death or sickness or disease or persecution or whatever we go through emotionally, betrayal, hurt, pain. We feel it in the moment. I'm not saying we don't, but we should never come to those situations with pity patty. Like if today on the way here, all, all of my wife and kids, do you know that people have died on the way to church? They've died on the way to mission trips. They've died on the way, people have died on the way to church camp. If my van today got hit by a semi-truck and the next word that I hear is my wife and six children are dead, I'm prepared to do a good work. Do not feel sorry for me. Weep with me. Uh, you know, feel emotional sadness for me, but don't feel sorry for me because that's a work I've been prepared to go through. Now, some of you don't know how to experience life like that because you think God is biting his nails when evil comes. Everything is father-filtered. Everything. Everything is father-filtered. Job could not touch, uh, Satan could not touch Job without God, and God gave him the good work, the ability to get through that situation. Are you listening? So if the next thing I hear today is, is Job, you are now a widow, you don't have a wife, you are no longer a father, all your children are gone. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Juan, help me plan a funeral. Let's go. That's it. What do what you think life's about? Where, where did the Bible tell you? You get to control the situation, complain when it doesn't go your way. You are as close to heaven as you will ever be. You need to get into that revelation. You are created to do every single good work before you, whether that's to, to face a, a tragedy of your family, loss, death, sickness, cancer, children, dying, uh, disease, uh, whether it's persecution in your nation, losing all of your rights, your children being raped or pillaged or, or being in prison. You today are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works with God prepared for you in advance to do. Joel Osteen won't tell you that. Most TV preachers won't tell you that because they preach a portion of the gospel to make it fit with American Christianity. That's what they want you to have. I'm giving you the real gospel that is grounded in life and death and suffering and pain and all of those things. 
That's how you go through life. That's how the old timers went through life. That's why when I went to a man's funeral, uh, brother uh, Pastor Wade Sutherland on the south side, who was my pastor when I was in New Orleans. He was actually from the south side, but he moved to New Orleans. When I went to his funeral, they were clapping and shouting more than you are today. Because they understand life and death still in the power of my God's hands. And if it's time for him to go home, we're going to praise God anyway. And we're going to get through it, and we're going to do a good work, and we're ready for it because God allowed us to go through this, and we're ready. Some people say, well, I don't think I'm ready. You're in sin. Stop saying that. Get the junk out your life. Well, he's giving me too much. I can't handle it. The Bible said, uh, you know, he wouldn't give me too much. I can't handle Well, you're a liar. Let me just put that back on you. So we got one of two people lying. Either God is lying through Jesus Christ in the scriptures and Paul who wrote that, or you are lying. I'll meet you in heaven, and you can discuss it then, but I'm going to call you a liar, liar, pants on fire right now. You better go to that word. You better hit your knees. You better learn to pray and surrender and say, God, if you brought me to it, you're going to bring me through it. Amen? Amen. How many are ready for 75 verses? That was the introduction. Amen? Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Learn the gospel. Verse 26, uh, chapter 26 of Matthew. We're going through the, the gospel of Matthew. Verse by verse, today it's not going to be as much preaching as it's going to be narrating. I felt in my heart to really keep the schedule of ending in 2019, the book of Matthew. So we're going to go through the whole chapter of 26 today, 75 verses. But if you think about it, I do talk a lot. So if I'm reading instead of talking a lot, it's going to kind of equal out to you and your ears. And it's going to be better when you hear the word of God than me just talking. So let's go, let's go to it. We're at the end of Jesus' life. His public ministry is now over. He is now going to be with his disciples. He's going to have a last supper and then be betrayed and arrested. Let's look at verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. So now you know, if you've been with us, why Jesus is hated by the Jews. It's not because he's been preaching Joel Osteenanity or Americananity. It's because he's been preaching Christianity, and they're upset with him. In the book of Matthew, we see clearly how he's dealt with them and the things that they have purposely rejected. But they are now going to fulfill prophecy. This is not catching God by surprise. The son of man term, as we will soon learn, is not just like he's a son, man. No, the son of man is a prophetic term in the Old Testament of one who is like a man but acts like God. We're going to see him start to use that term a lot here. But this is clearly a part of the prophecy that he was going to act like God. But however, they did not attach to the son of man prophecies that he was going to be crucified as in Isaiah 53. They did not see Isaiah 53 connected to Daniel 7. They just thought the Son of Man who would act like God was going to conquer the Romans, conquer the enemies of Israel. Let's keep going. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume, perfume, sorry, perfume, this perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. They say that this was worth about a year's wages. 
So what, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars was being poured on Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The Poe you will always have with you, Jesus said, but you will not always have me with you. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And how many have heard that story before? That's a fulfilled prophecy. We're now talking about her. This is Mary Magdalene who had demons cast out of her, and now she is giving to Jesus probably what is the most valuable thing she has in her possession. Some people like to say because she broke open the jar on Jesus that we need to be beautifully broken before Jesus. That has nothing to do with the story. Stop being silly. What it means is as she broke open what was valuable to her and gave it to Jesus, we break open what is valuable to us. Now, some of you are like, well, what do I do with my crazy then? Do I bring my crazy to Jesus? Yeah, you can bring your crazy to Jesus, but then he wants to put you in your right mind. You can bring your brokenness, your broke self to Jesus, but he doesn't want you to be broke no more. Are you listening to me? The Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I come Poe, but I leave Poe no more. Are you listening? So you can come broken, but leave healed because it says he heals the brokenhearted. But some people are just like, I'm breaking open all my brokenness. And I'm, no, 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 no. She's whole. She's not demon possessed anymore, y'all. She's whole. The woman is whole. She breaks open the jar, jar, not her. She's not there. I'm broken. I'm crazy, but I love you, Jesus. No, no. What she does is she takes what she has and gives it. Can everybody see the illustration there? Worship Jesus with what you have. Give him your life. Give him your family. Break open the most valuable things you possess in life and give it to him. If you are yourself broken, if you are in your, in your own mind are crazy, get saved, get demons cast out of you, so then you can break open stuff and worship Jesus. I'm sorry if I ruined what that conference speaker spoke to you on that TV show or whatever, you know, on that podcast, but that's really what it means because we don't ever see anybody saying I'm beautifully broken and all of that. No, we're breaking open our bank accounts and taking all the blessings that we have and giving it to Jesus. We're breaking open our family schedules and we're giving it to Jesus. We're breaking open our futures and our destinies and we're giving it to Jesus on mission fields and for the calling whole, healthy, sanctified, set-apart people are bringing to God their valuable things, breaking it open, and giving it to him. There's the application. So we see that the, the people are hating on him, and, and uh, the, the, also another gospel says specifically Judas gets upset about this, and then we learn that Judas is stealing money. But remember, we're going to learn about Judas here, but Matthew never mentions it. All we know is that Judas is about ready to betray Jesus because he put his plan above God's plan. Okay, so aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing. The poor you always have with me, and he explains to her those things, and that you've prepared. She's prepared my body for burial, and now we do this in memory of, uh, we preach in memory of her. Now, verse 14, then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So at this point, all we know, if we're just reading Matthew, we just know that 
that Judas is willing to betray Jesus for money because he wants his plan and not God's plan. What we believe is that these men wanted Jesus to be a revolutionary king-like figure. And yet he wasn't playing according to their plan. We're going to see that with uh, Peter cutting off an ear, then denying Christ as he sees it going in opposite direction of what he thought. We see this once the, cru- uh, once the crucifixion begins with the arrest. Uh, after the arrest, Judas will then give back the money. He'll feel bad. And then we'll learn that really the only difference between Peter and Judas is that Judas quit after he betrayed where Peter stuck around. And so even those of us who have betrayed Christ, we can still be saved and forgiven and given another chance, but we just can't quit and hang ourselves. So here Matthew is wanting to let us know that it is uh, Judas's desire to get money out of betraying Jesus for a motive that we can only suspect had to do with what he thought Jesus was supposed to be. That's why they're always arguing with him about trying not to go to the cross, but he's telling them continually, I have to go to the cross. That's why I came. Verse 17, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and said, where do you want us to make preparations for us to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him. The teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. It's wonderful. We took communion today already, and this is a beautiful illustration of that. This is where it comes from, the Last Supper. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. Now remember, the Passover, the word literally means Passover. This happened during the time of Moses and the Israelites being delivered out of Egypt. The Egyptians would not let them go, so then God killed every one of their firstborn children. He killed them. And by doing that, he spared Israel, but they had to have a Passover lamb sacrifice and the blood put over their doorpost. Jesus is now the Passover lamb. Remember, John the Baptist pointed to him, and he says, here is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus is fulfilling the prophetic symbols of this uh, high holy day of the Jewish people, and because of his blood being put over our lives, the wrath of God is going to pass over. Everybody get that? Isn't that amazing how the Bible like works together? That's a key sign that you're in a cult or a false teaching when the Bible cannot complement itself. The Bible complements itself when it is done correctly. When you look at the scriptures, everything fits together like a puzzle piece. So they're going to go celebrate Passover. This is what is going to go down. He replied, go to this person, get this place ready for me. And they did it. Verse 20, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. Believe it or not, I stopped here for a long time to think about this, and I made sure to check it culturally. Most of the people at that time ate close to the floor, tables maybe only about this high, and then pillows around, and they would recline and eat, you know, while they're hanging out. I so want to do that. How many have ever ate on the couch, made a mess, and said that wasn't a good idea? But here it sounded right. It sounded right. If I can be comfy, comf, and eat at the same time, that would be awesome. 
I want to tell you that biblical culture is a good culture. Now, some of it we may not want to repeat, but this I want to repeat. So one day, some of my friends and I, we need to try this. Let's get a table on the floor. Let's get some couches. Let's eat with our hands, you know, get the hummus with the, you know, the pitas and all of that, tear it and just have the wine there. And the, you know what I'm talking about, some lamb, you know, tear it and then eat while we're reclining. I just love this. And then if someone wants to be a rock star, they can lay their head upon my chest like John did with Jesus and share that moment. But here's the deal. It, it's not that when, because it's another gospel that relays this, it is not that when John laid his head on Jesus' chest that that was so different in their culture. In Indian culture, men hold hands, literally locked hands in, in down the street. They hold hands like this. Sometimes they'll just hold each other's fingers like they're little pinkies. They'll just have little pinky connections. Men holding hands. Because in their culture, that's normal. That's normal. How to express affection. Holy kisses is normal in other cultures. The Bible's holy kiss is a kiss on the lips. Men would kiss on the lips. It wasn't a kiss on the cheek. And men with women as well. We consider this part a sacred part. It would be perverted for us to kiss each other that way. Now cultures do it on the cheeks. But no, in their culture, as Judas is about ready to kiss him, Judas is going to kiss him on the lips. You can study holy kisses, sacred kissing, cultural kissing of the Jewish people. It was on the lips. And so I think eating at a table is one that we can adopt. Not the kissing on the lips, maybe not using the bathroom with our hands and outhouses, but I think we can do this. Verse 21, and while they were eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, uh, say to, to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. I'm not going to do this. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand in the bowl with me will betray me. And so what that means is they were sharing meals with him. The one who has shared a meal with him, the one has literally dipped his, his, his pita bread in the same bowl of spices here, has done it with me. Uh, who has done that with me is also going to betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. Now notice, the Son of Man, Daniel 7 term, high kingly authority. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man rules and reigns, conquers the nations. But notice he says, the Son of Man will go into this, into this suffering just as it was written. They didn't know how to connect Isaiah 53 to Daniel 7. That was their missing link and still for Jews today. They missed the link of the suffering servant with the ruling king. But woe to that one who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Now notice this. Anyone who betrays Christ in this life will wish that they had not been born as they suffer for eternity in hell. And so all of us, make sure you do not betray Christ, you serve Christ. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now notice, he is not teaching what the Roman Catholics teach, that this somehow magically will turn into his body and blood in a literal sense and will become cannibals every time we take communion. What he is saying is, this is the representation of my body, the representation of my blood. That's how we know that we're fulfilling the gospel is that we're partaking of Jesus. Communion reminds us that Jesus is in us, that his blood is covering us on the inside. 
We know if we eat physical food, it can only have a physical result. But he's making a spiritual principle out of that. Verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now remember, that's going to happen after the resurrection when he's with them for 40 days eating meals and enjoying fellowship with them. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So they worshiped together. Then in verse 31, Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now notice this. When you go to that prophecy in Zechariah, the striking of the shepherd is not the devil. It is God. God says, I will strike the shepherd. Whose wrath is being poured out on Jesus? Is it the devil beating up Jesus? No, it is God's wrath. My friends, this is why he came in the flesh to take the wrath that was upon us. Everybody has to get this. The devil is not your enemy as you are a sinner. If you are a sinner, the devil is not your enemy. You are already in his kingdom. You are, I am the enemy of God. God is your enemy if you are a sinner. Does everybody understand that principle? So Jesus takes the wrath of God, and in doing so, he defeats the devil. Yes, he defeats the devil in taking the wrath of God because he restores us, humanity, back to our rightful place of dominion. Adam and Eve were given dominion by God to rule and reign. We then sinned and sided with the traitor of Satan, and because of that, God's wrath is upon us and upon Satan. So how do we get free from his wrath? Someone had to be the Passover lamb. That is Christ. And in doing so, setting us free, we are now taken out of the kingdom of darkness under Satan's slave rule and brought into the kingdom of light. That's how the gospel works. So, so Zechariah is not saying that the devil's going to strike Jesus on the cross and strike the shepherd. No, Jesus is being struck by the Father. That's why on the cross he is going to cry out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's bearing the wrath of his Father on behalf of humanity. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. How many know he's going to rise? How many know the end of the story? It's going to be sad for a little bit, but we know where it goes. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Somebody say, it's time to pray. You see, as he's about ready to face the most difficult situation of his life, he is now going to pray. Go to verse 36. When we understand Jesus coming in the flesh, we know why he prays. Does he pray because he's not God? No, he prays because he has become man. He has taken on our weaknesses. He is living like us. That's why he gets hungry. That's why he gets tired. He does not come here as Superman with all of his God's superpowers. Though the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit equally share the nature of God, the Son has taken the nature of a man. He's taken the nature of a man. And so now he needs to pray to be encouraged to face this time. That's why he's going to start saying, if there's a way to do it other than this, let me know. Because now he feels what we would feel. So if you ever think 
When we read the scriptures and the Bible says, Jesus knows what you're going through, you think he doesn't, this proves you wrong. Jesus knows because as a man, he went through it like you and I. So Jesus goes to, with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. He said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. This is real. This is not make-believe. This is not like, well, I know it's all going to work out, and I'm just kind of pretending to feel bad right now. No, he's like scared, troubled, fearful, sorrowful. He is feeling all the feels. Everybody say the feels. His humanity is feeling what any person would feel. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me, which is another way of saying pray with me. 39, going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Do you see the humanity? There's the humanity of Christ. He is submitting his will to the Father. That was the error that Adam and Eve made. Adam and Eve did not submit their will to the Father. He is now doing what they did not do. Jesus, God the Son, in the flesh, in real human form, is getting back for us what we had lost. And the way he's doing that is by submitting the will of humanity to the thing of God. Then he returns to his disciples and found them sleeping. Look at your neighbor and see if they're sleeping right now. Everybody up. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is why I teach in our discipleship, every Christian should try to pray an hour a day. Praying an hour a day helps us to keep temptation away. It prepares your spirit for that which the flesh is weak in. Your spirit is not your flesh. Understand the principle. Flesh is weak. This has not changed at being born again. This still desires to be angry, to sin and perversion, to be bitter, all of those things in the mind, etc. Because you've got to remember your brain and your memories and your emotions, that's part of the flesh. But the Bible says when you pray, you strengthen the spirit over the flesh. So when you go now, uh, to Christmas season, and you see that extra food and all that stuff and all those desserts, you could say the, you know, you want to keep your diet, you could say the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Help me along with this pecan pie. That's what I went back for second song. You get me some pecan pie. Oh, baby, I'm ready to, I'm just ready to eat it. It's got to be done a certain way. You know, I, I, I lived in the South over eight years. Y'all probably don't know much about it up here. Anybody like pecan pie? Oh, y'all know about that? Oh, y'all know about pralines? Anybody know about pralines? Some of you, maybe you in New Orleans, visit a little bit. Pralines is a very good, tasty treat, very uh, pecan pie-esque. It's made with uh, pecans and different things and brown sugar, but it's like, a, it's like a brown sugar cookie made just with brown sugar and butter and pecans. But anyways, when we feel the flesh is weak, we don't give in to it. We don't now say, well, my flesh is weak. I'm just going to do this. No, we pray. 
And the spirit, man, takes control. The spirit person controls the flesh. Just like you control your flesh. Everybody raise up your right hand with me, please, if you can, for this illustration. Now put down your right hand when you're ready. See, you control your flesh. You can control what that hand does in eating, where it it goes in life, and how you spend money with your flesh, and all of these things, your sexuality. You're in control with your spirit, man. And so pray that your spirit, man, can overcome the temptation of this world. He finds them sleeping. He commands them to keep praying and reminds them the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. God, just do it, Lord. I don't want to in the flesh. I know it's going to hurt, but your will is best. Let's go. Understanding the will of God may not always feel good to your flesh. Surrender your flesh to God and say, may your will be done. Everybody say that together. May your will be done. Come on, think of situations you're facing in life that are tough, but you know God has told you to go through it. May your will be done. How many know you've got to say that a lot of times in life? May your will be done as a parent with teaching and raising up your children, though it may be easy to give them a pad instead of doing a Bible study. May your will be done as you're giving tithes and offerings, and you may be going through financial hardship. May your will be done, young people, as you're breaking away from the cool kids of your school and you're going to the Christian clubs. May your will be done as you're going in life and doing things that that take hard work. You're, You're surrendering your will to God. When he came back again, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They were tired. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hand of who? Hand of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. The Jewish people, let us be reminded of this, represent all sinners. The Roman government represents the Gentiles. The Jews represent the God, God's chosen people. Both the Jew and Gentile in this story are sinners and crucify our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So that includes us. We are the reason why he died. And if we were playing it out in this story, we would be no different. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12 arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Here it is. Here's the climax. He's been rebuking them. He's been correcting them. He's been teaching them the ways of God. They have rejected it, and now they're going to arrest him. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Here we see that Jesus even calls his betrayer friend as he's submitting to the will of God. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. Though Judas will suffer his own consequence and penalty, Jesus is not bitter. Bitterness will never give you a good result, especially in the kingdom of God. Bitterness is a sin that is damnable. So here we learn that Jesus, free from bitterness, calls his own betrayer friend more than likely hoping that he would repent, even though he knows his future is damnation. Jesus still knows that he's not going to repent. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. 
With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. We know in another gospel, this is Peter. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said, for all who draw the sword or who live by the sword will die by the sword. Now, everybody understand this. This does not mean Jesus is against a defensive a war or war that is just. He is not saying, cursed is everybody who lives by the sword, so never carry one or use one. No, he is saying the principle to Peter. Peter, if you think my kingdom is going to come by this, you're going to die by this. That's not how the kingdom is coming. It's not coming by us being like Muslims, conquering by a sword. That religion starts about 700 years after Jesus, and they're still doing that today. Though Christians have at times conquered in Jesus' name, they were no more Christians than I'm an astronaut. Do you understand the difference? Do you understand the difference? I don't think you do. When a Muslim carries a sword and brings religion by force in jihad, like the ISIS leaders do in Syria and those parts of the world, they are like Muhammad. Muhammad carried a sword. They carry a sword. Muhammad fought battles, subjugated people. They fight battles, subjugate people. Muhammad took sex slaves. They take sex slaves. That's what Muhammad did. Now, your neighbor Muslim may not do that because they're not very good Muhammadans. They don't follow Muhammad very well. They're backslidden Muslims. True Muslims live like ISIS, and thank God for a lot of backslidden Muslims. But here's the difference. When a Christian carried a sword, did Jesus carry a sword? No, bad Christian. When a Christian takes a slave, did Jesus take slaves? No, bad Christians. So when Christians have used Jesus' name or the cross or the church or these teachings and have conquered and have done slavery, they are the opposite of Jesus. When Muslims carry a sword, subjugate people, take over the parts of the world they're in, they're good Muslims because they're like Muhammad. Let me just say it to you simply. The more you're like Christ, the more passive you will be towards war. The more people are like Islam, more like Muhammad, more aggressive they are towards war. So let us as Christians be more like Christ. Amen? And so carry a sword, defend, live in the way where you can have a just society. The book of Romans says those who carry the sword in government do so as God's servants to, in, uh, to inflict punishment on the bad. And so that's good. So sword comes up again in the New Testament. That's a good thing. But remember, we're not supposed to live by it. And once again, that's what another religion has done, and we pray for them to get saved. Do you not think... I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. One legion in the Roman army was 5,000 soldiers. Jesus says, do you not think I can call 60,000 angels to this place? What did two angels do to Sodom and Gomorrah? What did a few angels do during Passover time? What do you think 60,000 angels will do to this planet? Read the book of Revelation and see what seven of them do. When seven angels drop it like it's hot on planet Earth, Earth is done. Blood is as high as a horse's head for over a hundred and some odd miles. Uh, stars start falling from the sky. People are like, they couldn't get here fast enough. You don't know what angels can do. 
You understand? Angels, I mean, come on, they're trans-dimensional beings. Angels will be pulling stars out of galaxies that couldn't get, you know, like a shooting star, like a real star is not a shooting star. What we call shooting stars is just comets and things passing through our atmosphere. How many know that? And so how many know like our nearest stars, the ones that are around us, couldn't travel here fast enough by the speed of light? They couldn't get here. So people try to say, see, your Bible's wrong. No, they're going to be trans-dimensional with those things. They're going to pull the star from where it's at, boop, bing, and then beam me up, Scotty, to where it's about 100 miles outside of our atmosphere and then toss it in. Are you guys listening? The Bible says they're literally going to take stars and start throwing them upon us. The Bible says that they're going to punish. So Jesus said, you don't think I can do that? Of course I can do that. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Why is that so important? Because Matthew is teaching us that Jesus as a suffering servant is not an accident. Because if you were a Jew that thought Jesus was only going to conquer and be a ruling king, you're scared. You're missing it. You're like, what is going on? This guy's not supposed to die. But he's showing them that Jesus was always talking about it from the beginning of the gospel all the way down to the end. And literally at his arrest, he's going, guys, I have to fulfill the scriptures like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. It even says that they're going to gamble for his clothes in Psalm 22. They're going to gamble for our Lord and Savior's clothes. It's a prophecy. He needs to fulfill it. Verse 55, in that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. As we go to verse 57, once again, that's why we're warned about false Christ at his second coming, because false Christ don't fulfill prophecies. Jesus is the exact opposite. He fulfills prophecy. That's why when I preach to a Jewish person, I show them all the prophecies Jesus fulfilled. I don't try to change the prophecies. For example, when I was dealing with the cult the other day, and I was showing them scriptures, they try to change it to fit into what they want to believe. Jesus didn't have to do that. Jesus literally took the scriptures and said, hey, this is what's happening. I will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's actually written in one of the prophets. It says they will gamble over my clothes. I will be, uh, I will be lifted up and the world will see me like the serpent was lifted up as Moses, in Moses' time. He's saying all of these things and they're coming to pass one after the other. Verse 59 or, or excuse me, verse 57, those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Remember, Jewish? And then we're going to see Gentile with Rome and Pilate. Both Jew and Gentile are sinners guilty. All nations are guilty of this crime against our God. But God uses it for good. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were, were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. Because remember, as Jewish citizens in Rome's government, they just couldn't kill whoever they wanted, especially if they were an important person. They could do it on the slick and try to cover it up. But Jesus was a 
a public figure, it would have brought too much attention to them. So they need something that now they can bring to the Romans and say, we should kill this guy. He's not good for Jew, nor is he good for Gentile. And what they want to catch him to do is bring about sedition. Sedition. Rome lets you worship any gods you wanted, but the moment your god was placed above their gods, they took that as sedition. You can have your gods, but your God cannot be greater than our God because our God has a son, and his name is Caesar and sits on this throne. He's a son of the gods, like a pharaoh, and you can't be greater than him on this earth, and you can't believe that your God is greater than, pharaoh, uh, than Caesar's God. And Jesus is about ready to tell them, I'm not only Caesar's God, I'm your God, Jewish people. I'm the maker of this whole thing, and that's how they're going to now bring him to the Romans. But they did not find any, of course not. Jesus did not do anything that would be... Uh, that would, that, that that would uh, give them the evidence they were looking for for crimes of sedition. They had to make it a theological one. Though many false witnesses came forward, finally two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now notice the gospel harmony here. Where did Jesus ever, I'm looking to some scholars in the back, where did Jesus ever say those words in the gospel of Matthew? He doesn't. What you see is the collaboration of the Gospels. We now read in John's Gospel where he actually says it. But here you have, think about how cool the Bible is. You have an accuser coming up in Matthew's Gospel going, he said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it. But if you're looking in Matthew's Gospel, you're like, that never was said here. Where was that said? That was never said. But then John is like, telling a story, probably not even knowing if Matthew has wrote a gospel because they're in different parts of the world. We're not sure if they knew of each other writing gospels at this time. But either way, John just tells a story. And one of the stories is while Jesus was at the temple, he points to it and he goes, destroy this and it will be rebuilt in three days. But what he was talking about was his body. John actually explains it. What he was talking about was, you're going to destroy my body because I'm the real temple, not this temple, and I'm going to raise it up in three days. I just think that's amazing how the Gospels complement each other, not contradict each other. Amen. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. Fulfilling Isaiah 53, 7, that as a sheep before its slaughterers is silent, so was the, uh, the suffering servant. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Now notice verse 64. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Ding, 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 ding. What did they get? They got their theological problem to go to Rome with, with a seditious problem that will get them the death penalty. Go with me to Daniel 7.13. Let's see what Jesus is quoting there and why he's been calling himself the Son of Man. We've already been through it earlier, and uh, I think it's good to remind ourselves. The Son of Man just doesn't mean he's a son, man. No, the Son of Man is a divine title given to the ruler of God's kingdom. He is not just a mere creature. This is someone that is equal with God and has the same authority as God. How many gods are we allowed to worship according to the Bible? One. Okay, so you're not allowed to worship anything else or anyone else other than God, correct? Okay, let's go here. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. That's why he's using that term. Is Jesus coming down as a glowing spirit 
Is he coming down as he was on the mountain of transfiguration, shining brighter than the sun? Is he coming down in his fullness? No, he is coming down like a man, to be born of a virgin like a man. That's why he's calling himself this because the vision shows one like a man comes. But let's see. He comes with the clouds of heaven. Let's see if he's just a man. He approached the ancient of days who is the father and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And literally the Bible says God shares his glory with no one. All nations and peoples of every language, what? Worshiped him. Does Buddha worship him? Yep. Does Muhammad worship him? Yes. On judgment day, all nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. This is the judgment day. Does everybody get it? Okay. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Well, how many kingdoms are there? How many dominions are there? Literally, how many king of kings and lord of lords are there? The same title given to God in the Old Testament of King of Kings and Lord of Lords is the very tattoo Jesus has on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Why is that? Because there's not three gods. There is one God who is the person of the Father, the person of the Son, and the person of the Holy Spirit. The Father being the Ancient of Days, the Son being the King, and the Holy Spirit being the presence ruling and reigning over all of God's creation. And the central figure there is Jesus. At his name, everyone bows. At his throne, everyone bows. Now go back to our scenario in Matthew chapter 26. Are you the Messiah or not? Tell us. We want to know. Okay, well, you asked. I am, and you will not see me until you see me come like the Son of Man. Look at what it says. Until you see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. Has he blasphemed? If you're the son of God and you say you're the son of God, have you blasphemed? No. But that's, their, that's going to be now their, their issue. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face, struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you. And now the torture and the mocking begins. Verse 69 and onward. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow, he was with Jesus of Nazareth. Look at this, you know, they're pointing it out. He denied it again with an oath. He said, I don't know the man. So he's like, I swear on my mama, I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses. Blankety, blank, blank, blank. And he swore to them again, I don't know the man. And immediately a roaster crowed, or crowed rather. I have here a link because some people try to say that the crowing of the rooster is a contradiction with Mark. This explains it perfectly. If you want to understand what they think is a contradiction, it's always a compliment though, but I have it there for you. Then Peter, remember the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Let's give it up for the word of God today. Amen. Band, would you come, please? <sighs> Sad to leave on this note, but I think there's something here that we can gather from this. Do you 
want to be faithful to Jesus to the end of your life, to death even? Yes or no? Amen? You want to, how many want to be faithful to Jesus? Everybody here? Okay, so how do we avoid what Judas and Peter did? How do we avoid that? Well, number one, we don't trade Jesus' plan for our plan no matter how much worldly prosperity we get. The first way we see betrayal happening is Judas wants a different plan than what is God's plan. In other words, if you read through the story, what are you seeing Judas represent? The will of man against the will of God. What does Jesus represent as he's in the garden? The will of man being submitted to the will of God. Do you see it? You're supposed to see the villain and the good guy in the terms of will. Judas wants his way. He wants Avenger-style revenge. He wants conquering King Jesus. He wants to start ruling and reigning now. He wants a throne now. He wants money now. He wants acceptance now. And if it means he betrays Jesus, he's willing to do it because he knows better than Jesus. How can you and I avoid that? By accepting what God has given us as his will in our lives. God's will is the best for our lives. You may not always like where you're at. You may not always like what people are doing to you. Your flesh may feel at times that quitting or moving along to something else is better, but you and I are to resist that. We are to pray, and we are not to follow the flesh, but the Spirit. And what was the Spirit saying that day? The Spirit was saying, take up your cross and follow me. Judas was supposed to take up his cross. What is the Spirit saying in your, your situations and my situations that we find difficult, uncomfortable? We could probably tell God by sending him a letter or an email how we could do it better. What are we supposed to do? Take up our cross and say, in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this marriage, in the midst of raising these children, in the midst of working this job, in the midst of attending this church, in the midst of balancing my budget, in the midst of the suffering, I'm following you, Jesus. Not my will, but your will be done. God, if you get glory out of this storefront, then I'll be here as long as you want me to. God, if you get glory out of me working this job, then I'll be here as long as you want me to. God, if you get glory out of me being a mother or a father or a husband or a wife in this marriage, I'll be here as long as you want me to. doesn't mean God can't change or deliver. It just means you're surrendering your will to his. That's how we avoid what Judas did. What about Peter? Peter's just scared. Peter doesn't necessarily want to thrust on Jesus another way. I think the, the thing with the sword could go there like he's trying to start a revolution. But he takes his rebuke. He, he takes it. But where does he really deny Christ? He denies Christ in the face of suffering. And so often we become afraid of that which causes us suffering. I talk to most of you parents here. What is the number one thing you're afraid of? Something happening to these children. I mean, is that not it? 
That's our biggest fear. The biggest fear, don't let something happen to my children. Don't let something. And, and it's almost like we make this kind of negotiation with God. God, you take care of my kids. Don't let them get shot by a, a stray bullet. God, don't let them get cancer. Don't let them die in an accident. And I'm, I'll serve you and I'll be happy and I can go through everything. God, you could take my husband or my wife, but don't take my kids, Jesus. See, but we make these, we make these exchanges in our heart and it's idolatry. Once again, as much as we would feel the pain of losing a child, our child is not our God. God did not give us little idols to worship and put before him. God gave us children to honor him with, and he loves them more than we'll ever love them. In the face of suffering, will you serve Jesus, even if you lost what is most valuable to you? How about finances? One of the most scariest times of my life, is when we went through the Irving Park situation where we left here, we went to another building. I, uh, I thought the economy was going to change, and it didn't, so it kept going downward. People here in the, in the church were having bankruptcies, and we never took anything from the place where we were at that we didn't pay for. It's just we couldn't keep paying for the lease. And so we literally negotiated, renegotiated, negotiated, renegotiated, and then there was just a day where I had to take the final check and be like, if you don't change this rent drastically, this is our last month. And then they threatened to sue me, which they did. They threatened to sue the church, which they did. And I knew at that point that my pristine integrity would now have a flaw. Joe financially messed up. I've always had perfect credit, always paid my bills on time. You know me, I preach holiness, owe no man nothing. And so I got so afraid. How am I going to face God's people and say, I made this mistake. This has now happened. And the fear of failure gave me a way out. The fear of failure. Okay, God has closed the door on Metro Praise. I'm done pastoring. Obviously, this wasn't supposed to be his will. See you later. I'm headed to Cali where the sun's shining in the middle of the winter there. I'm going to better weather. I'm going to where I can wear my chanclas every day. I'm going, y'all. This was fun. I messed up. God taught a lesson, but let's move on in our different, you know, let's, let's part ways. See, that would have been the easy thing. And even if I could have done it with ministry, right, I could put, put on there, I'm going to a new place, and it's going to be another pastoral job, and could have looked good on paper, but God said, no, 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 no. You're not going to deny me like that. You're going to go right before the people. You're going to admit your mistake, and you're not quitting. You're going to restart the church. God uh, was telling me, I'm going to reopen the door where you started to begin. You're going to come back here. All of these things started to connect in place, and I had a choice. Do I let the fear of failure have me deny Christ and his will for my life, or do I submit to it? It's not about just you becoming some kind of atheist. It's about looking at Peter as an example of when we deny God in the face of our failures and our fears. And so probably in your heart and my heart, we'll never understand what it feels like until we're there. Because now even when I tell the story, it doesn't feel the same. And there could be another situation coming ahead that will rock me even harder. But if we want to be different than Peter, 
We have to prepare ourselves to submit to God in the face of suffering and trust him and say, I know you're, you're a good God, and I know you're going to make a way where there seems to be no way. Because as the old preacher said, yes, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Amen? There's death on Friday, but there's resurrection coming on Sunday. There's the betrayal and suffering on Friday, but there's acceptance and there's glory coming on Sunday. So don't quit on Friday. You're getting close to your Sunday. The resurrection is going to happen. We just have to make it through that dark season. So whether or not it's our will versus God's will, like Judas tug of war trying to manipulate God, or whether it's us just being afraid to suffer and to go through hardships in our walk with God, let us not betray him. Let us not deny him. And if you are here today, let's just say you're here, and you're like, man, I'm convicted. I feel like I've done what Peter's done. Or I feel like I've done what Judas has done. You can be forgiven. We know what happens to Peter. He gets restored. He gets to preach the first gospel message on Pentecost Sunday. And my friends, Judas did not have to hang himself. That was his choice. So if you're here today in the land of the living, if you've done either one of those things, as the altar workers begin to come right now, I'm going to ask you to receive prayer, to give your life to God 100%, because he even called Judas friend. You're still a friend of God today if you're willing, you're willing to let him change you. How many people here want to be a friend of God? How many want to let Jesus change us from the inside out? Amen. Can we stand to our feet today and close in prayer? Father, we thank you today for this great service. We thank you for communion that reminds us of what you did for us. And we ask you now to show us in our hearts if we have betrayed you in any way and to now teach us how to be faithful to you. Teach us to pray with you. Teach us, God, to worship you, taking the most valuable things of our lives and laying them at your feet so that when you come, O oh Jesus, as the Son of Man, ruling and reigning with your Father, we may hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. Good and faithful servant is what we want to hear on that day. Just a few moments before we start worshiping. We're going to dismiss in just a moment, but would you look at your heart? Everyone here, Peter and Judas could, could be uh, betrayers. You and I can. Don't overlook this today. Take it serious. Has, has there been ways you have over, uh, have you, is there ways that you have tried to do things differently than what God has told you to do? Have you tried to overrule God's plan for your life? Say like Jesus did, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. We'll dismiss after we sing this song. But if you need prayer, come on up for anything, especially for what we talked about. Otherwise, let's worship today before we go. Jesus, we love you, Lord. We love you.